Good morning. If you would, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelations, chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 7 through 13 this morning. I don't know how you would really title this message, or, or this message is called The Live Church, but it's really been a series of messages on the seven churches of Revelations, but... Um, Primarily, I hope that what you've got out of this if you, if, is that you've seen some fruits of negative things in the churches that Jesus addressed, and you've seen fruits that were positive things that Jesus addressed. And today, we're actually going to look at a church that um, had nothing but positive to say about it. And uh, it, it and the church of Smyrna are the only two churches that actually... Um, uh, the, Jesus had nothing negative to say about them. It was only commendation, so... When you get there, stand if you would one more time. I know you stand to sit down, stand to sit down. But uh, this is in, um, kill it. says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shut, and who shuts and no one opens, I know your words. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, I'll make them to come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to, those, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I want to come to you right now. and uh, Father, I just pray that you would cause your word to accomplish its purpose. God, the purpose that you are sending it out for. Whoever you mean to speak to, I pray that that's exactly who it speaks to this morning. Father, I pray that, um, pray that we're different when we leave here today because of your word. I pray that the living and powerful word that we read today uh, Lord, that it would change us and mold us and make us into everything that you are trying to to create in us to do. And Father, I pray this morning for um, for all of my family members that uh, are in times of grieving, suffering right now. Father, I pray for um, for Mary and, um, and her family, Father, with Hasig and Brother Bill. Father, I thank you for the war spot in the floor over here where his shoes were. Father, I thank you that, uh, that Lord, he, he left an impression here. And, Father, I just I pray for his family this morning, God, and I lift them up to you. And I just pray, God, that you, would, that you would just let them know that you have them. Lord, that you are more than enough to, to supply every desire and every need that they have. Father, I, I pray this morning for, uh, for Trillian's family. Father, he, he laid his mother to rest yesterday. God, I just um, I pray for him and his family this morning. God. Lord, I pray you comfort his heart. I pray that you let him know that you got him. And that, Father, you, you are still more than enough for him too, God. Father, I thank you for my church family. Thank you for family that is just there to support and hold up during tough times. And Father, thank you for all of those that were able to be there. Lord, there were so many of them. Father, I, I thank you for the ones that weren't, God, for whatever reason. God, I, I just, I thank you for my family. 
Father, I just pray that you keep growing us closer to one another and you grow us closer to you. And Father, um, I can't thank you enough for, Lord, just all the good that you are to us in our lives. We don't deserve anything. But God, we were able to get up, take a breath this morning. We were able to get up on our feet and come to a house of worship to hear your word, to sing praises to you. Father, I pray that you forgive us where we take that for granted. And Father, I pray that we take advantage of every opportunity you give us to serve you, no matter where or what it is, Father. I pray that we would have a heart that wants to lay up treasure in heaven and that we want to build your kingdom, God. And Lord, I pray that you just put desire in our heart to serve you with all that we have. God, I know that my desire comes from the mercy and the grace that you've shown me. But I know I don't deserve any of it. Thank you. Thank you for the grace that you've given me in my life. Father, I just pray that you forgive me and forgive us where we take your grace for granted. Father, I just pray this morning again, you have your way. You do whatever it is that you mean to be done right now. You preach this word. Lord, I'm nothing more than a piece of clay that I'm asking you to use me, God. So, Father, do what you do this morning. Speak your word and change us. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Last week we looked at a dead church. Uh, the Bible literally said uh, the words of Christ literally looked into this church and He said, you have a reputation that you're alive. I know your works. I know the things that you do. And you have a great reputation and you do some great things. But the truth of the matter is when I look inside, I see that it's dead. And we found that the only reason that a church, or first of all, we found that churches are made up of individuals. So he wasn't just talking about a building dying. He was talking about the individuals in the church. The only way a church dies is if the individuals in the church are disconnected from the source of life. There is no other way for the church to die except for the individuals not be connected to the source of life. And so he's, he's telling them that you have rejected, and basically he was telling them you're the walking dead. Basically he was letting them know that you're going about and you're doing these great things, but the truth of the matter is you are not trusting in the Spirit of God that God has given you. You're not walking in a manner that's listening to God and is actually obeying God. And that is the only way to be alive is to let His Spirit speak to you and Him create new life in you as you actually are conformed to the image of Christ. Remember, the old man is dying. The new man, what does he call it when we're saved? To be born again. So in other words, when you are alive in Christ is when you are living in a born again condition. And the only way to be born again is by the Spirit of God that He gives to you, and then He shows you and teaches you His ways through His Word and through the life of Christ. And then as you learn the ways of Christ and you put on those ways by the power of the Spirit, you listen to what the Spirit says to you, and you walk this thing out, then you are alive. The problem with this other church was they were probably doing some great things. They probably had good doctrine. They had good teachers. They had a lot of good things going on. But in their daily walk, in their life, the truth of the matter is they did not listen to the Spirit of God. They were not obeying God, but instead they were just trying to do good, be better. And so I hope that from last week that you saw that you need to live a different way as a born-again Christian. You need to live as one who is sensitive and listening for the Spirit of God to speak to you. And then when He shows you the areas in your life that don't belong, don't quench it, don't ignore it, but instead listen to it and obey it. And if you follow that process, then you are a live Christian and not a dead Christian. And so today we're going to look at a live church, a church that Jesus actually looks at, and He says, this church is alive. And so let's take just a look at this church. And one of the things I want you to notice in all of these letters, in every one of these letters, if you go back and look at them, you'll see that there was a, there's always an introduction. He always comes on the scene and says, here's who it's to, here's who it's from, and He describes Himself in a particular way as He introduces who He is to them. 
And then after the introduction, there is usually a condemnation. There's usually a, um, I don't want to say a reproach, a, uh, a disciplinary um, act of some kind. He comes on and says, listen, here's what I have against you. Here's what I see that's going wrong. And then after that, in every letter, he usually comes in with a commendation or a, a, a special praise of some kind to say, but this is what you got going for you. And then after the commendation, it's usually some type of an, of an exhortation. And if you've been around me long, you know that I define that word as this, to make an urgent appeal such as telling the troops to hold the line. So think about that for a minute. So after he commends them and he gives them a special praise of something they're doing wrong, then he exhorts them. He gives them an urgent appeal such as telling the troops to hold the line. If you've ever watched a battle or you've been in the military in some kind or you've been in some kind of uh, a battle in any way and you've, you've seen that uh, sometimes the enemy begins, begins to back you down and you watch and a retreat begins to happen. But then all of a sudden, uh, the leader steps up and he makes an appeal and he says, hold the line. And what happens? They all come back together and they all begin to, to, to lock arms and they, they begin to push back against the enemy. That's what an exhortation does. It's an urgent appeal to you that, that is asking you to, to, to be a man or, or, or fight like a girl, as some, some of these people say. I don't know. Um, it, it's telling you to stand up against the enemy the way that he is, is giving you the power to do. But in this letter right here, the only thing that's missing is the condemnation. There is no discipline. There is nothing wrong with this church. And, and here's what surprises me about that. Y'all know as well as I do that there is no such thing as a perfect church, right? I mean, you know as well as I do that this church did not have it all together. They weren't perfect in all their ways. The individuals wasn't doing everything right in every area of their lives. There was probably secret sins in these places, but nowhere does Jesus come in on the scene in this church and does he give any kind of discipline or any kind of condemnation. The only thing he does is he gives a commendation. And so I want to look first off at the introduction of this right here so that we can see. You might remember from last week if you were here that I told you that every letter Jesus introduces himself as something different and it's always to address the particular needs of that congregation. So if he addressed himself as the one, for instance, in the church of Smyrna, he addressed himself as the one that uh, has died and has came to life and lives again. And then he goes into the message and he tells them, you are fixing to go into persecution. You are fixing to go into suffering. Be faithful even unto death. So his introduction was to remind them that I am the one who's already died. I'm the one that's already went through the suffering. And I'm also the one that came to life. I'm also the one that has the power to give eternal life. And so every introduction that he gives is an introduction as to something in particular that that church needs. So while there is no condemnation, there is only commendation, what we have to see here is that Jesus still wants them to understand I am still the one that you need I still have things that you need even though you've got a lot of things right even though you've got it together I am still the one that you need so let's look at the introduction in Revelations chapter 3 verse 7 he says and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One the very first thing that he points out here is that he is the Holy One. Now you might remember from Isaiah chapter 6. I've mentioned this to some of you before, so if you know it, just stay with me. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have these angels that are on each side of the throne of God. And then at the throne of God, they are flying with six wings with, uh, I think it was... Um, with two hands they covered their face with two they covered their feet and, and I can't remember exactly how it goes but 
They couldn't even look upon the glory of God as they were sitting there worshiping God. But the Bible says that 24 hours a day or for nonstop, without ceasing, these angels flew beside of the throne of God and they said one thing. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so when Jesus steps on the scene right here and he says that I am the Holy One, you have to go back and understand what the word holy meant. And the best way to see it is from that story in Isaiah. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in other words, they looked at all of creation everything that is and all that God has created and all that God has done and when they look at everything that God does the only thing they can say is one word holy holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty the whole earth is full of His glory so what is it that the angels are trying to say they're saying that when we look at all that God is God Almighty the Lord of all creation when we look at all that He is there is nothing and there is no one that is like him. Nothing can compare to him. He is completely set apart from all that is, all that ever has been and all that ever will be. He is God Almighty. The whole creation is filled with his glory. Whenever you go back and you look at uh, uh, the, um, the Old Testament and the things that were holy, he would say, set this apart because it is holy unto the Lord. Uh, when Moses stood on holy ground, he told Moses, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. Was that ground any more different or special than any other dirt in the world? No. So why did he say that's holy ground? Because that ground is set apart for a specific service unto God. That's it. It is something that God has took and he set it apart to be used exclusively for him. And whenever you go into the temple and when they were building the things of the temple, he said, these things will be holy unto the Lord. In other words, they are not to be used for anything else because they are, they are things that God has declared holy. He has set them apart. They are specifically for God's use. And so Jesus steps on the scene here and he says, these are the words of the Holy One. Now, why does that matter? Because according to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, he actually tells us that he is holy. He is the Holy One, and because he is holy, he commands us to be holy. Riley, do you have that? Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. He says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine here's the thing about a church and here's the thing about Christians God is calling you to be separate from the world not to be holier than thou not to be better than other people he is calling you to be separate from the world so that when people look at you they see him and the only one that is able to call you to such a standard is the one who is holy himself. And so Jesus comes on the scene before he addresses anything and he reminds the church that he's calling to holiness that I am the one who is holy. I am the holy one and because I'm the holy one, I can call you to be holy. So it's very important that you understand that when Jesus comes on the scene and he asks you as Wells Baptist Church to be holy, to be separated from the world, that's a tough task for us, is it not? It is. It's a hard task for us to be separate from the world. I can't imagine. I, I, you know, I, I used to work in the factories with other people, but I can't imagine being Jeff Mathis and in in, in, in Tammy and in the, in the jobs that they do with the people that they deal with on a daily basis and then asking them to be separate from the world and asking them to be Christ-like in their professions. That's a tough role. Or just in, in 
a lot of these factories around here where the majority of it is not Christ-like, is not holy. And yet, Jesus comes on the scene and asks you in the midst of that to be a light, to be holy. And he wants you to understand, I'm not asking you to do anything that I don't have the power to do through you. The only thing I'm asking you to do is trust me and obey me when I tell you to live this way or to talk this way or to do these things. He has lived the life he's calling us to. He has all the knowledge and all the power that we need to be holy. Uh, I'm just going to read this scripture to you, but it's from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. It says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. So he is calling us to holiness. And the only way that we can fulfill this is if we first understand that the one who's calling, it, calling us is in himself holy. And he is the definition of holy. So he is the holy one. The next thing he comes on the scene, he says, I am the true one. This translation, the true one, actually comes from a Greek word that's, that's pronounced something like this, alquinos, I believe is how you say it. But here's what it means. It means the real, the genuine. It's anything that stands opposed to what is false. And it takes things that only, it stands opposed to the things that only picture what is real. So here in just a few minutes, you're going to see that they were um, in, in kind of a disagreement with the Jews. And one of the things the Jews didn't understand is that they were still worshiping the picture, the shadow. They didn't see that the real had come. They were living in a generation of people who worshiped idols and, 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 and served and worshiped everything except for the real and genuine do you do understand that there is nothing in this creation that is real other than God, right? Everything else comes to an end. Your bodies, your breath, your life, your possessions, everything that you have comes to an end. There is only one thing that is reality, and God is the reality. That's it. And so he says, I am the true one. So even... even um, the Jews in this time and what they were, were worshiping, they just they didn't realize that Jesus was the real picture of what they were they have been serving all this time. It was just a shadow of Jesus Christ and his coming. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18 through 26. He says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Is there anything like him? An idol? He said, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver change. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot and then he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing. In other words, even your greatest people, the greatest ones you can think of, think of the best people you know he says, he brings them to nothing. And he makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. In other words, they're not going to last long. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. Trump is not the savior of, of the United States. He's not. Look at what it says. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says who? The Holy One. He is the Holy One. He is the genuine. He is the true one. There is nothing and there is no one like Him. And that is what He's trying to get across to you. And let me tell you why I know that we don't get this today. Because even though we're not crafting out 
um, idols that we sit and we worship and even though we're not taking wood that will not rot and having a skillful person carve them out we are casting all of our desire and all of our worship on all the created things we don't put it up on a, on a, on a pedestal and worship it but you live for it and Jesus addressed this whenever he came, uh, whenever he came the first time. He, he came on the scene and, and, and he told them, he said, Listen, don't, don't lay up treasures in this world that, that moth and, and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where no thief comes in and steals and no moth and rust will ever enter in to destroy. He tells us very plainly, you set your desire and your affection and your worship on all of these things that are good things. It's not that they're evil if they're used correctly. And they are meant to be enjoyed. But we live for them instead of actually living to serve God. And living, to, does that make sense? So while, while we hear God say, I'm the true one, I'm the genuine, and while we say in ourselves, yeah, I know that, I know that, the truth of the matter is, a lot of times in our lives, we're no different than any of these people right here. Jesus is still saying to each one of you today, I am the true one. I'm the genuine one. I am the only one that is worth living for. And he, has, he wants to get that message across to you today. And finally, the last part of the introduction. Jesus says that he has the key of David. He says, I have the key of David, and I open and no one will shut, and I shut and no one opens. And this is likely a direct reference because it's a quote, actually, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, verse 15 through 22. Let's read that very quickly so that you see where he's coming from. Because remember, in another letter here a while back, he addressed an Old Testament reference of Jezebel, a false teacher. And so here he is addressing another Old Testament reference. So let's see what this reference is so we can see what he's trying to say to us. Isaiah 22, verse 15, it says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward or this servant, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. And there you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station, in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder, here's the direct quote, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Let me put this in layman's terms so you don't have to go back and study it unless you want to to understand it. Shebna was a great man. He was the king's main man. He was the guy who literally had the key to David's kingdom. He had the key that if, if he wanted you to have access to the king, you could have access to the king. And if he didn't want you to have access to the king, guess what? He has great authority. He is a great, powerful man, glorious chariots, all these things. But he became proud. And because he became proud of all that he was, in this prophecy, he said, I'm going to take from you your authority, the key to the kingdom of David, the key to all the treasury of the royal palace, he had the ability and the authority to bless people with the kingdom stuff or not. And he said, I'm going to take this key away from you and I'm going to give it to this guy. And this guy was a good man, but if you were to keep on reading in, in Isaiah 22, and we're not going to do that, but if you were to finish the chapter, 
The prophecy goes on to say, as good as he is, he can't uphold it all. He can't uphold who all gets access to the king and who don't. And he can't uphold who gets the treasures of the kingdom and who don't. So even his stake is going to give way is what it says. But then Jesus steps on the scene of Revelations and he says this, I have the key of David. And he's referencing this. And what he wants you to understand is this, I am the only one that can grant access to the king. I am the only one that can deny access to the king. I am the only one who has authority to the royal treasures of God. And I am the only one that is able to bless or not bless. I have the key of David. I am the one that if I open it, it will not be shut. And if I shut it, it will not be open. And we're going to see what that means here in just a minute. So let's go just a little bit deeper. All right. <clears throat> As we go just a little bit deeper, we get into the commendation. So we have the introduction there. I'm a holy one. I'm the one that's completely set apart from everyone else, and I'm calling you to be holy. I'm the true one. I am the only one that is genuine. Nothing else is worth its investment. Nothing else is worth your time. Nothing else is worth your commitment. I am the only genuine, the only true, and then I'm the one who can grant you access, and I am the only one that can grant you access to the kingdom of God because the kingdom of David was simply a picture of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who has the key to grant you access to the kingdom of God. In verse 8 he says, I know your works. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name before we go much further I want to look at one of the things that you may not see as a commendation or a praise but it actually is notice he said that you have a little power now that don't seem like a, a praise if I were to come on uh, if I were to come to the pulpit uh, on a Sunday morning and look at you and go guys you're weak I see that you're weak and I see that you have little strength I see that you have little power that wouldn't seem like a praise a commendation but here's the thing that Jesus is telling them they have right he said you're a humble church they were probably a small church they were probably didn't have many resources they actually lived in a land that had volcanoes in their backyard it, it, they, they suffered from earthquakes regularly they were actually destroyed by an earthquake and Caesar actually allowed them to rebuild by not charging them taxes so that they could use their money to rebuild so they, they, they were probably a, a church that had very little resources they were a church that probably was not very large they were a humble church and so Jesus told them that I've set before you an open door a great door and no one's able to close it and you know that you have little power you know that you don't really have the resources to do what I've set in front of you you know that you don't really have the strength to do what I have set in front of you and that's not a bad thing it's not a bad thing for you to know that and understand that so what Jesus is trying to get across here is that if you recognize in your life that you have little strength, it's a good thing for a Christian to be that way. Because here's what it makes you do. It makes you depend on the power of God. You come into this thing, and whenever you see yourself fighting a temptation that you deal with, and you recognize yourself, God, I don't have the strength to overcome this. The only thing I can do is rely on you. And then God says, that's a good place to start. That's the place where you need to be. Think about it like this. Do you think it's coincidence that the majority of the time God didn't use somebody until they were either very advanced in age or very young in age so that he could take them through trials to keep them humble? Think about Moses. Moses wanted to come on the scene at 40 years old, prime. 40 years old. Well, I don't know if he's prime. I'm almost 40 and that ain't really prime. Maybe it was back in. I don't know. Got to be better than 80, right? So Moses tries to come on the scene at 40, all right? 
But instead, when he comes on the scene at 40, he ends up running off into a wilderness and spending 40 years out there. 40 more years, he's 80 years old before God comes back to him to use him. And he finds him on the backside of a desert keeping sheep, and he can't even talk. He stutters every other word. And he had to come to the end of himself before God could ever really use him. Abraham was 100 years old before he actually allowed him to fulfill the promise and have a baby. Sarah was 90. And then let's go to a few other people. Let's say you want to talk about Joseph. Well, Joseph was a young man. Yeah, Joseph was a young man. But do you remember what happened to Joseph before God actually used him? He was sold into slavery by his brothers, thrown into a pit. After he went to slavery, he ended up in a prison. And then he actually began to rise up and probably thought things were going pretty good, uh, uh, growing still uh, uh, 12 years into this thing. And all of a sudden, uh, the, the Potiphar, the man that he's serving, his wife comes in and accuses him of something that he doesn't do, and he ends up back in a prison. And so he goes through all these ups and downs and ups and downs and just a horrible life until he finally gets to the point that God brings him out and says, okay, now you're ready. And you know why Joseph was ready? Because God had brought him to the end of himself. Nowhere in Joseph's mind or thoughts did he think, okay, I've brought myself to this place. I've got myself in this. I'm a wise man. I can do this. No. He figured out in all these trials that I'm nothing. I can't do nothing. I have no control over anything. And until you figure that out in your life, you ain't found your first step to being a faithful Christian in a faithful church. You have got to come to that place in your life where you understand that I have no control over anything. Have you figured that out yet? I have no control over nothing. I have no strength. I have no power. Sure, God has set a great open door in front of me. I can't do nothing with it. I don't have the power. I don't have the strength. I have no control. And God says, that's a good place for you to be. And here's why God loves it that way. In James chapter 4, go with me to those, Riley. James chapter 4, or actually I didn't give you those. I'm going to read those to you. James chapter 4, verse 6 through 7. God opposes the proud. What does it mean to oppose something? It means to stand against, right? God opposes or stands against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here's the reason. Pride is the root of all of our sin. Everything that you do is a result of you trying to be self-satisfied instead of trying to be satisfied in God. That was the problem in the Garden of Eden. We looked at the tree. I say we because if you and I had been there, we wouldn't have been no different. We looked at this tree and we said, that looks good and I want it. And we had the creator of that tree right in front of us and we said, I'd rather have that tree than the one who made it. And that is the root of all of our sin is whenever we think that we have control and we want to do what we want to do. We want to serve how we want to serve. We want to walk through the doors that we want to walk through. And he says the first step in this thing, you've got to come to the end of yourself. So God opposes the proud because that's how all this began to, to begin with. It's the root of all of your sin, but he gives grace to the humble. In Matthew 23, verse 12, he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. In other words, God will bring you to the end of yourself. <laughs> you don't want to see how that looks, but you can either humble yourself and be exalted, or you can exalt yourself and you can be humbled. So the best case scenario for us is to recognize that we are nothing and He is everything and come to the end of ourselves. I ask the question, why is humility exalted by God? Because it says in Matthew 23, verse 12, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So why is this? And my answer I come up with is this. Because it put things in truthful perspective. It put things in, in, in truthful lineup, exactly where they should belong. God deserves the glory for everything, and we deserve to praise Him for who He is. We don't deserve to take credit for anything, not even the breath you take. Go to the nursing homes today or go to a hospital and you find somebody that if they could take a breath, they'd take it. But they can't. You know why? 
because they have found out that they don't even have control over whether or not they breathe. You don't have no control over anything. So whoever is going to humble themselves, God will exalt because it put things in the right place. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11 says this. I'll read it to you. Whoever serves should do so as the one who serves with the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Peter said the only way you should even serve is in the strength that God supplies so that God is the only one that can get the glory for even the service that you do. And a lot of you, some of you may be sitting there thinking to yourself right now, well, that makes God selfish. That makes God conceited. Listen, the word conceited means to have an inflated view of oneself. Is it conceited when it's true? No. God is not conceited. He is worthy of all praise. You know why? Because he is worthy of all praise. He is not conceited. He is not selfish. He is exactly who he is. And let me tell you who he is. He is the creator of all. Everything that is has its existence from him. And because of that, he deserves all the glory and all the praise. But here's the good part. He so loves you, his creation, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life with him in his presence, in his glory, enjoying all of his goodness. So he is such a good God that he wants you to come along beside him to reign with him. The Bible says we will reign with Christ. To reign with him, to enjoy all of his goodness. But you have to understand that it's not because of any great thing that you bring to the table because the only thing you bring to the table is what God gave you. That's it. So the first thing that this church had to recognize is that we are nothing. We're nothing. We don't have the strength to do anything. He deserves all the praise and all the glory for even the breaths of air that we take. And until we come to that, there is no way that we're going to ever be faithful Christians or faithful church. We've got to understand that we are people of little strength. I want to show you just a few more scriptures, and uh, Riley will have these up for you. Isaiah chapter 40, one more time. Starting in verse 6. It says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? And here's what God told him to cry. Tell him this. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Here's what God is trying to get across. He's trying to remind Israel, his children, Guys, I'm not trying to put you down when you saying when I tell you this. I'm trying to put things in truthful perspective so that you can get in line with where you're supposed to be. And if you do that and you humble yourself, then he will exalt you. So God wants you to be exalted. So he comes to the prophets and to the preachers and he says, cry to the people. Cry to them with everything you have and tell them you're like the grass. You're like the flower in the field. Yes, you have some beauty. Yes, there are some good things to you. And yes, I've created you for a purpose and a reason. But the truth of the matter is, at any moment, your existence is like that. You are no more. You're nothing. It's not a put down. It's not an insult. It is just truth. And when you come to realize that, it's a good thing. So God wants you to recognize exactly who you are. But then in verse 12, look what he says of Isaiah 40. Uh, verse 12 through 16. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You know what the hollow is? It's that little circle right there in the center. He said, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? In other words, he's saying that I've done that. 
God said, I can literally take all the waters of the world and I can put them right there in the hollow of my hand. And then he says, and who has marked off the heavens with a span? The span was the distance from about right there to the elbow, I believe is, I believe is what a span was. So he said, I, I can measure the heavens with just the span right there. Now listen, God ain't trying to brag. He's just putting things in perspective. And even this don't put it in real perspective. It's just trying to give you something to be able to compare. All right? And then he goes, who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? A measure that you would put on a, a balance. Who has took all the dust of the earth and put it in a measure? And who weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance? Who's able to do that? God is. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And what man shows him his counsel? In other words, who teaches God? You, you got something you can teach him? No. And then he says, whom did he consult? Did he come to you last night and ask you for any advice? Do you ever go to your, do you ever go to your God in prayers and God says, Hey, Nick, let me ask you a question. I don't really know what to do in this situation right here. What would you do? That ever happened to you? No never happened who, who did he consult and, and who made him understand anything who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales behold he takes up the coastlands like fine dust Lebanon and this was a place of many cedar trees it was a forest of cedar trees he said Lebanon would not suffice for fuel if you were to actually offer him a burnt offering that he deserved Lebanon wouldn't even give it enough fuel nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering there is nothing and no one that compares to him especially not you especially not us so don't ever think for one minute that we do anything great for God or that, that, that God needs us for anything. No, God welcomes us and, and, and is, is glad to let us come along the side of Him and Him work through us so that He gets the glory for all that is done. <clears throat> Whatever God is calling you to, whether it's holiness, I can see there's no way I'm going to finish this. Imagine that. Whatever God is calling you to, whether it's holiness, as He is holy, or whether it's some great door that He's opened, you've got to know that you have little strength and you've got to remember His promises. I want to go through a few promises for you to remember. Oh, I've got three of them real quickly. First promise comes from Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10 through 14. Isaiah 41, verse 10 through 14. He says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You know, you ought to have an arsenal of promises so that when you find yourself in tough situations or you find yourself in temptations or something, you ought to have an arsenal of promises that you can go back to right here and you can remind yourself, fear not, God is with me. Don't be dismayed. He's my God. He will strengthen me. He will help me. He is going to uphold me with His righteous right hand. That is a promise from His Word. And I'm putting my confidence in it and I'm trusting it that He's going to do this. Another promise, Romans chapter, or actually Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Look at what it says. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong one. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. I knew it didn't sound right. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you and he will not forsake you. Romans chapter 8 verse 31. This will be the last little promise I give you even though the Bible is full of them. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
These are great promises for you to remember no matter what you're facing. And then going back to Revelations, I want to get to one very quickly. I'm going to skip over. The second point real quick, they were an obedient church. Christ opened a door, they walked through it. But here's the thing about it. You can see a door that Christ opens and walk through it and be obedient, but without humility, you're no different than the church of Sardis. You do great things, you do great works, you walk through the door, but the truth of the matter, unless you're doing it, recognizing that I do it in the strength that God supplies, you're walking in pride, you're walking in thinking that you are able to accomplish something. You do it in the strength that He supplies. They were an obedient church. They weren't just humble, they were obedient. And then, number three, they kept the Word of God. If you were to look again, you'll notice He says that you had little strength, but you have kept my word. They kept the word of God. Jesus actually told his disciples, he who loves me keeps my words. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And you know, here's what I ask. As a church member, when was the last time that you had a major decision or a life crisis in your life and when was the last time that during that time you called me to actually ask me or Nick what does the Lord have to say about this? Or when was the last time that you had a decision or something going on in your life that you sit down with the Word of God and said, God, what do you say in this? The truth of the matter is, the church of today's generation thinks they have it figured out. Christians in today's generation, we think we've got all this figured out. We think we have the wisdom. We think we have the understanding. And we think that we know the ways of God. Do you know how prideful that is? The next time that you have a decision in your life or you have something in your life that, that um, no, no matter what it is, you are to sit down and ask yourself the question, what does God have to say about this? And if you can't answer it, that's the reason why he has put us in your place. The book of Hebrews chapter 13 literally says, Submit yourselves to those and the pastors at this time that he has put in authority over you, for they watch and care for your souls. Did you hear that? They watch and they care for your souls. We actually have more of a purpose than just standing up here and taking up an hour of your time on Sunday morning. We actually have a purpose to actually be able to take this Word of God and look at your life and go, thus says the Lord. It's been a long time since I've actually had the opportunity to do that with many of my church members. It's usually on the back side of this thing. I, I usually come in on damage control. I don't know how, how you are, Nick, but... I usually come in on damage control. You know what damage control is? After everything's already fallen apart. Why don't you understand that at the beginning of this thing, you ought to be asking your pastors, what does the Lord say about this? Not what do you say. What does the Word of God have to say about this? They kept my word. If you're going to be a faithful church, you must keep His word. Number four and the last one. They weren't ashamed of Christ as their Savior, even under great persecution. In verse 8, he said, Not only have you kept my word, but you have not denied my name. In this time, most Christians started out in the Jewish synagogues and they would be studying the Old Testament scriptures. But once the Christians started talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Jesus being the Messiah, the Jews would literally put them out of the synagogue. And in this time, they had a list. And if Jews lived under their own law under the Roman Empire. Rome trying to keep peace with the Jews. They let them live under their own law. That's the reason why they had a king of the Jews because they had lived under their own. And so Jews were exempt from things like emperor worship. So Jews literally had a list in their synagogues and if your name was on this list, then you were exempt from having to worship the emperor and saying the, the emperor is Lord. But guess what happened if the Jewish synagogue put you out? You are no longer on this list. And now all of a sudden, for you to bear the name of Christ probably means you're dead. And the Bible tells us that in this church, they had actually been put out of this synagogue. They were actually being persecuted by these Jews. And Jesus comes on the scene. He tells to them, listen, don't worry about it because the Jews don't have the key of David. 
They may shut you out of their door. But when I open a door, I give you access to the king. I give you access to the king, not the Jews. So they kept his name even under great persecution. How would you respond to that today? If that were a situation today, and, 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 and to, in order to keep the name of Christ, it meant that now you're going to have to give your life or endure some type of suffering, how would you respond to that? Before you answer, I want to ask you a question. How many of you pray over your meals at a restaurant? I figure we had a few that do that. But don't raise your hand on this. How many people, if you did pray or you do pray, you try to get that prayer done before anybody sees it? Or before the waiter comes back or the waitress comes back. You try to get this thing done, get this, get this out of the way. And then... I mean, something as simple as just praying to your God in public. What about your workplace? Same scenario. A faithful church is a church that is unashamed of Christ and His name. The Apostle Paul said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of salvation to those who believe. Paul said, I believe that salvation comes through the name of Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus Christ makes us right with God the Father. He opens the door and gives us access to the King of all kings. And because of that, I'm not ashamed of him. I don't care what nobody thinks. I've known a few people like that in my life, and I know a few right now. But I don't know a lot of people that are just unashamed of Jesus Christ. Just being honest with you. Faithful church, they're not ashamed of Jesus Christ. They don't deny his name even under great persecution. In closing, he's basically saying this. To the humble to the God trusting, to the God following, to people who keep my word, to people who are unashamed Christians, I promise you that I'm going to keep you from the great tribulation that's coming. I wish I had time to get into that. I don't. Just trust me when I say you don't want to be here for that. To the faithful, and the only way you're faithful is if you've come to the end of yourself only way you're faithful is if you're obedient to the open doors that he opens. You know, that's another question. Do you, do you go through the doors that he opens in your ministry, in your church? Are you, are you looking for those open doors to even be obedient to him? But if you're humble, you're obedient, you go through these open doors, you're God-trusting, you're God-following, you keep his word, you look to him so that when a decision has to be made, you want to know, God, which way do I go? And you trust him and you're unashamed. That's the perfect Christian, not the Christian that's sinless. And he promises, I'm going to keep you from the great tribulation. No one will ever take eternal life away from you and you will bear my name forever. Those are the promises that he gives to the faithful church. I pray that Whichever one that he spoke to you this morning, surely there was one in there that hit you that said, that's one I've got to work on. That's one I've got to get to. Whichever one it is, I pray that you understand that you can be a faithful Christian just like this church. If they were able to do it, you're able to do it. But you've got to first come to the end of yourself. Be obedient to God. Recognize that he's the genuine, he's the true one, and nothing else is worth living for. Recognize that, that I have to keep his word because if I love him, I keep his words. And then you, you recognize that, that at the end uh, of all of these things, that he has nothing but reward for those who are faithful to him. Nothing but reward. Everything else that you're living for around here is temporary and it will come to an end. Wait till one day when I'm sitting by your bedside like I have so many and you're struggling to take your breath and then let me ask you the question, what is all that stuff worth now? You know what your answer will be? It ain't worth anything. He's the true one. He's the genuine. Y'all stand.
whatever the Lord spoke to you this morning, this is a time of invitation for you to humble yourself before him. And as I told you earlier, the promise of God is that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever comes to the end of themselves and understands that Jesus is Lord and he is the only one that matters, they will be exalted. So I pray this morning that whatever it is he spoke to you, you let him lift you up, let him exalt you this morning.